0: Tyranny is Tyranny by Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn's essay is not written to demonize the motives or the actions of the men who organized and executed the transition from the colony to the United States. However, it is clear that the men's motivation, while their achievement impressive, isn't as clear and as pure as kids are first taught in the early stages of their education experiences. Zinn states, They found that by creating a nation, a symbol, a legal unity, called the United States. They could take over land, profits, and political powers from favorites of the British Empire. In the process, they could hold back a number of potential rebellions and create a consensus of popular support for the rule of a new privileged leadership. The reality is that both the colonies and the transition from a rebellion to organized states featured and teetered on chaos, and the control of chaos would shape the United States and what it would become. The wealth gap alone in the post French Indian War had caused a major wealth gap, and the lower class was gaining both numbers and emotional despair. The colonies were supposed to be a land of opportunity, and as many saw their chances to improve, their collective lots in life, limited and stifled, anger and resentment rose. The entire revolution depended on organizing a lower class who easily could have shifted their allegiance to the British. It all depended on who could offer them the best deal. Mobilizing the working or lower class would establish, as Zinn puts it, a long history of American politics, the mobilization of lower class energy by upper class politicians for their own purposes. The power the lower class wielded was tremendous lacked the cohesiveness to be substantial on its own. The British weren't engaged enough to realize the weapon that the lower class could have been, but the colonists leading the charge for revolution did, and it was with their words that changed the course of history and founded a nation. Is this oversimplifying the situation? Probably some. But we are going to examine the words used by Patrick Henry and Thomas Paine, as well as the wording in the Declaration of Independence, that inspired a large mass of people to take action. I'll leave the detailed history lesson to your history teacher. We're going to focus on the human expression. Winning the hearts and the minds pushed the revolution to a fever pitch, and it was driven by writing. It is essential to the foundation of this country and the cultivation of the American identity that was fostered soon after and is ingrained in our lives today, for better or for worse. <laughs> Howard Zinn explained that Patrick Henry's goal during his speeches was to find language inspiring to all classes, but have the language be vague enough to avoid class conflict. The focus needed to be on a unified front against the British. Even if for some, regardless of who was in charge, their respective lives would not change. Thomas Paine's common sense achieved what Patrick Henry deemed the correct use of language and created a long-lasting inspirational document that was accessible for the masses. Paine's simple approach, that time makes more converts than reason, is both simply put and deeply profound. Even when faced with abuse from the British on many fronts, it was easier for people to complain but make no changes. Common sense pushed people of all classes to think beyond what was easy and comfortable and to think bigger and even to dream of something better. The groundswell and emotional attachment to the cause, tied to the stats and facts portrayed that it was time for the colonies to be no more, and becoming 100% self-sustaining was the only answer, even if it took bloodshed. Paine appealed to the masses, stating, The cause of America is, in a great measure, the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances hath and will arise which are not local, but universal, and through which principles of all lovers of mankind are affected, and in the event of which their affections are interested. This is not to be looked at as a revolution against the British, but one standing up for humankind. It might sound hyperbolic out of context, but the level of detail to appeal to all, to inspire all, isn't easy. And pain establishes an emotional plea long before he hits the reader with the facts and the stats. As readers and thinkers, we need to learn from this, not just in a historical sense, but from an analytical sense. It does not make the document weak or a joke because you can see the game that Thomas Paine is playing, but it is in his word choice that he strengthens his cause in one of the many pieces of complicated processes that establish the formation of the United States. We're now going to explore a few important quotes from Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And I hope you enjoy and can reflect upon these both in your writing and in our conversations. Quote number one. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections the latter negatively by restraining our vices. The one encourages intercourse, the other creates distinctions. The first is a patron, the last a punisher. Society in every state is a blessing, but government even in its best state is but a necessary evil. For this quote, I want you to think about what the term natural liberty means. Okay? Pain here seems to be implying That our need for government comes from a place of protection and security. Do we agree with that? We're going to focus on that first line. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. That's the one we're going to really, really dig into. And we're going to move on with our second quote here in a second. Quote number two, the prejudice of Englishmen, in favor of their own government by kings, lords, and commons, arises as much or more from national pride than reason. This quote's important because it goes back to comfort. You might be very unhappy in a situation, but if you're comfortable and your life is not truly at risk, how willing are you to make significant changes. How willing are you to go from complaining about something to then maybe taking some action? Maybe it's a letter, maybe it's a protest. At what point does that protest, does that letter turn to a more public demonstration? And then at what point does it turn to violence? In this case, with this quote, he's saying that basically people who were still supporting the British We're just doing so because they still felt pride in being British and that if they actually thought about the lives they were living or the potential of the life they could live outside of British rule, that they wouldn't stay or stand by the king. Okay, We're going to talk about this in context of the revolution. We're also going to talk about this context of your own life. What are the things that we just accept out of comfort? That's really the question that we're going to explore, both in the context of the U.S. history, in American literature, and also in current events. Quote number three. For all men being originally equals, No one by birth could have a right to set up his own family in perpetual preference to all others forever. And through himself might deserve some decent degree of honors of his contemporaries, yet his descendants might be far too unworthy to inherit, is our third quote. Well, We need to think about this, and Paine states this pretty clearly later on in the paragraph around this section, that the first kings were the best savages. He calls them principal ruffians. And do we want the lineage of someone who was just the most savage barbarian to pass down genetically to be the ruler of all and to associate that person being a descendant or appointed by God? When you apply this theory to all people, it does raise incredible questions about how acts of slavery and inequality throughout history just seem conveniently sort of left out. So we need to think about this both as an argument point made by Paine But we also need to analyze who's he really talking about when he says for all men being originally equals. Is he really applying it to all men? Are we just talking about land owning white males? But if we were truly meaning all men originally are equals, it does beg the question of why it was so slow, particularly in the United States, to bring about equality, something that is still an ongoing issue in today's society. pain makes it very clear that greed is power. And the more powerful someone becomes, the greedier they become. And this becomes a passed down trait from generation to generation with each generation of king taking on more and more greed. So we're going to look at this quote two ways. We're going to talk about this idea of equals in that first line, for all men being originally equal. And then we're going to talk about this idea of savages and the idea of who were these kings originally that then become the line of secession in power positions. And what does that look like in modern day? We might not, be ha- we might not have warring kingdoms anymore, but is this an element still present in today's society? quote four the sun never shined on a cause of greater worth that's our fourth quote this one's got a lot of, it's a short quote but there's a lot to think about in this whole section we will look at this page together there's a lot to consider here one of Payne's major points is that there needs to be a new method of thinking. That just establishing sort of the status quo, sticking with the way life is, what's easiest, might not be what is best. He has the analogy that little kids don't live on their mother's milk forever. This is one of the arguments you hear all the time, that whether or not the revolution would have taken place, that at some point it would have been a natural situation for the British to relinquish the colonies. It was too difficult to oversee, particularly as the colonies expanded and became more populated. Payne likes to argue here that America would actually be further along without the European influence if left to their own devices. I'll leave that to your history teachers to sort of dive into But it is one of the points when we talk about, remember we're looking at this from a writing standpoint, that he does make. He points out that Parliament and the colonies have no relation to one another. He even goes as far as saying there's ties in the Reformation as a sign from God that America was meant to be discovered and then be free. He has another quote in this section where he says, then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. That line that line's important. That hath carried fire and sword into your land. Can you still serve that power? That's a complicated quote there. Okay, and we're gonna talk a lot about laws and law and order and rebellion and protest. As we dig into American culture, American society Particularly at the base Because the foundation of this nation Is centered around a rebellion Had the colonists lost their bid to be free What does it look like In those years right after If the revolution had failed Could people have gone back Probably not what of Payne's strongest arguments, another great point. He says, you shouldn't leave this to your children. He says, and not leave the next generation to be cutting throats. Very descriptive line. We talk so much about descriptive writing. And this is what makes great speeches. This is what makes great writing. It's those images. Don't have your children be the ones fighting this war. You do this for them. This is part of being a parent providing guidance. He makes it very clear that the travel and the size is too far and that the colonies are just now too big. And he starts a transition here very near the end of this section. That the whims of kings have no jurisdiction in in the American laws. And American laws were made by Americans for Americans And he says in America, law will be king. It will be a government of its own natural right. So this idea that we're going to put all of our eggs in this basket of laws becomes a consistent trend. And as we study American literature, as we study parts of American history, while setting up the context for the literature we're going to study, we're going to come back to this a lot. Laws are going to change, but the human emotion connected to these laws is something that we're going to consistently look at. Payne concludes this section by saying things like America is the only land left where freedom can prosper. And we're just delaying the inevitable if we do not try to do this now. And the last two quotes, I think, that are great here. He says, we have in our power to begin the world over again. And lastly, independence is the only bond that can tie and keep us together. And those are the two things. We're going to end this section here. Is that this idea of sort of getting people excited about something is, listen, we're going to start this whole situation over. Everyone's going to be able to you know, be something else. It's this idea. It's a it's a complete fantasy. But if you can get people to buy into it, that, listen, at least in re- in reality, your life's going to be a little bit better. But if you sell it like, listen, your life's going to be substantially better, then you're going to get more buy-in. And it's, it's a really great way that he sets this thing up to make sure that people all across the board can connect with it. And this is what Patrick Henry was trying to establish with his speeches. And this is what Thomas Paine does so well. He's not lying. He's not trying to say this will never happen. He's not, he's just saying, listen, this is our goal. And while we might not get there, we're going to have our own country. And I, and life should be better for you with us in charge. And then that last line, that independence is the only bond that can tie and keep us together. This ends up being one of the touchstone elements of American culture in a lot of ways. This idea of being free, being independent. We are one, but we are also individuals within this big system. And that's one of the terms we're going to really talk about and analyze, because I do think we need to look at what exactly, how free are we? How free is anyone? So we're going to keep building on this. Remember, we're digging in this from a literature standpoint, with some historical context, with some really big concepts to think about. And let's be very open-minded to sort of asking some questions that might not have very clear answers. Quote number five, we fight neither for revenge nor conquest, neither for pride nor passion, or are not insulting the world with our fleets and armies, not ravaging the globe for plunder. Beneath the shade of our own vines are we attacked, in our own houses and on our own lands, is the violence committed against us. We view our enemies in the character of highwaymen and housebreakers, have no defense for ourselves in the civil law, nor obliged to punish them by the military one and apply the sword. For this quote, we're going to focus on what it means to be on defense. And while that so- might sound really simple, the idea of defending yourself, being pushed into a corner, and being left with no other option than to lash out, and that this revolution, as much as it's about, reestablishing a new order is also about defending yourself for your rights and while pain goes over a long list of how these rights have been taken for granted we do need to look at this also sort of in a general way of what it truly means to have your rights taken away what it truly means to be dehumanized and at what point does violence become the answer? The tone set by pain is present in the Declaration of Independence. Borrowing heavily from John Locke's second treatise on government, the concept that government was designed to create liberty, life, and the pursuit of happiness, and if it failed to do so, be torn down and started over, was not an original idea but essential to the foundation of the document and etched into the core of our collective history. This document was written to inspire the masses, but in reality was only to ensure the long-term success of the white, landowning, upper-class men who were already powerful. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they all are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. This sounds beautiful, and inspiring. But this was a group of powerful men making a power play for control because they knew the financial and political gains that could be made. The men and all men are created equal is referring to white land-owning power figures who didn't want to be looked at as less than or controlled by a government far away. Non-land-owning males were not included here. Women were not included. Slaves were not Included. Slavery was not ended, and natives were not negotiated with. It sounded good, but it was shifting the power from England to a group already wealthy and influential in the colonies and establishing the truest American policy that law would rule, and the law and the laws would protect those at the top while giving the rest small improvements to invoke a positive reaction. Howard Zinn's essay, A Kind of Revolution, focuses heavily on the need for the revolution to inspire the working class to take up the fight against the British. It's truly difficult to get someone to put their life on the line if you cannot create an enemy or show how much life could be improved in victory. Zinn states... They did this by enticing men to join the military with the promise of money and social rank. When that did not work, people were forced into the military through sheer will. A belief in the cause was the hopeful result. It's wise we look at this situation through the scope of literature that you take into account how difficult it is to both inspire and keep people engaged. The revolution wasn't as clean as it's usually depicted, and we learn more through understanding of this struggle Than we do have stories of hardened men freezing out the winter at Valley Forge. How do you get lower class people to fight when they feel like they will be under the command of the elites no matter which side wins? How do you handle the fact that slaves were outnumbering whites in many parts of the South and there was a fear that they could be weaponized against the colonies? The goal became, as Zinn puts it, this became the characteristic of the new nation. Finding itself possessed of enormous wealth, it could create the richest ruling class in history and still have enough for the middle class to act as a buffer between the rich and the dispossessed. The lower class fought a war, for better or for worse, that was to foster in a new establishment of political elites. Zinn explains the town's mechanics, laborers, and seamen, as well as small farmers, were swept into the people, by the rhetoric of the revolution, by the coronary of the military service, by the distribution of some land, thus created a substantial body of support, a national consensus, something that even with the exclusion of ignored and oppressed people could be called America. It is ownership and the cultivation of a collective spirit that comes from the writing of this period. The revolution does not happen if people were not inspired by the speeches. In so many ways, it was the writing that created this nation. You cannot overlook the fact that from common sense to the Declaration, to the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, the five groups were left out of the conversation. Slaves, natives, indentured servants, women, and men without property. However, there was enough momentum to get people to fight and to support a cause because there was a chance that their lives would improve. The revolution didn't holistically change the lives of all, especially the five groups left out. But it did open the door for the demands to be heard and conversations to be started whether the new government was ready or not. This is why it's so important that we have a basic understanding of the ugly, gritty, not-so-perfect start to to the United States. It is because of this that groups feeling left out of the conversation, underrepresented and undervalued in our society and culture, have the confidence to fight first with words and then in protest. Because it mirrors the foundation of the country, one that just happened to not provide life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness on an even playing field to all as advertised. Over the next few classes, we're going to look at the speeches and writings that were used to inspire a nation to fight for its own freedom. We're going to analyze these texts and see if the themes and emotions associated with them establish a reoccurring notion in the various social movements that have battled to be heard since our nation was founded. Understanding the complex of the beginning in the United States is not to vilify it, but it is also an effort to evaluate the pedestal that so many have placed the origins of the country maybe not so high and out of reach. Our focus will remain on the written expression and the tones and emotions that went from prose to bloodshed that birthed a nation still fighting within itself to reach the lofty potential it established. We're going to have one major question that we're going to evaluate during this unit, but we're also going to use it as sort of an anchor while we evaluate other elements of American literature. So as we move through time and history, we're going to come back to this question over and over again. And the question is, are we destined to be a nation at conflict with itself until we reach the aspirations laid out in a Declaration of Independence. I'll read it again because I know my voice isn't so hot right now. Are we destined to be a nation a conflict with itself until we have reached the aspirations laid out in a declaration of independence? Okay. So that's gonna be our big question. Civil unrest, social injustice, where is this stem from? We are a nation that's founded on this principle of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We like to say that all men are created equal. But until that is a true statement for all who live within the borders of this country, are we destined to have issues? Conflicts are going to arise. People are going to disagree. That's just part of the nature of the beast. But until people feel like there is actual equality, equality and opportunity. And what we're not talking about here is political ideologies. What we're talking about here is trying to attempt to reach the standard that was laid out by the men that created a revolution that founded a nation. If that's the standard, if we're going to be equal to all, and this is going to be that country, that experiment as it's been called before, until we reach that level. And we're going to talk a lot about the American dream this year and where that stems from and and that sort of entire sort of marketing aspect to that. Are we going to fall short? Are we always going to have people feeling Alienated. One of the big issues that we are going to look at with American literature is that we seem to have this theme of winners and losers. In order for the American system to work, people have to be on both ends of the spectrum. You can't all win. But is there an America, is there a United States where the bottom is not so low? And there is still a high high. But maybe the bottom is not as low in that the opportunities that are available for people give people hope and promise that that idea, that that goal of the American dream, isn't just a dream. It's a standard that everyone living in this country can focus on and feel like it's achievable. It takes the dream out of it and makes it the American goal. We're going to talk about this a lot because particularly as we see what happens throughout the variety of social movements, starting all the way back at the foundation of the country to modern day, how do we grow and develop as a nation? And still feel like we're making the appropriate gains that were cultivated by the founding documents. If we're going to stick to those, if we're going to say that these things cannot change, we're going to be a nation centered around life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness where all men are created equal. Can we say that with a straight face and feel confident about it? Or are we always going to be a nation until we achieve that goal finally? we're just falling too short of that aspiration. It's something to think about. We're going to dig into a little bit of the history, the politics of it, the sort of the mass media marketing of it. And we're always going to come back to it from an emotional standpoint as we evaluate it through literature. If people are feeling oppressed and alienated in a nation that pride itself on this founding document that's supposed to be championing equality. Then until we reach that level, then we're still falling short of that founding document. So we're going to talk about it. I think that's going to lend itself to some really great conversations, some great writing. And I'm looking forward to having this school year be very reflective in nature, not just in what has occurred, but what role you can play in making this country better, not just for yourself, but for all.